Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts, of George Mason University and Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, find other episodes, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. It's February 11th, 2009, and my guest today is Alan Meltzer, professor of political economy at Carnegie Mellon University and a visiting professor at the American Enterprise Institute. He's the author of A History of the Federal Reserve, which volume one, taking us up to 1951, is in print. Volume two, taking us up to 1986, with some uh, thoughts on the current situation, Uh we expect to be published uh, this fall or somewhere around there. Alan, welcome back to Econ Talk. Thank you. Nice to talk to you, Russ. So, uh, our topic for today is monetary policy writ large, but in particular uh, in the last few months. Uh, there are a lot of mysteries there for those of us who are not experts, and I'm hoping you can help us understand the situation better. I'm going to start off with, with a seemingly very simple question uh, What is going on? Uh, monetary policy appears to be enormously expansionary by some measures. Is that true? Uh, what measures should those of us who are not on the inside be looking at? Well, first, it certainly is enormously expansive. I, I don't think uh, there's never been a period quite like this in terms of the growth of the monetary aggregates, the supply of reserves, the purchase of uh, central banks in developed countries never purchase illiquid assets, but the Fed has been buying them by, to quite a large degree. So, in my opinion, it has a terrible policy. It does have to do things about the current crisis, but it doesn't have to completely neglect the future. But what are they doing? Uh, give us a feel when you say it's enormously expansive and, and, and unprecedented. What is happening uh, literally? What is the Fed doing uh, with respect to the balance sheets of banks? You said they're buying up illiquid assets. Try to explain that again for a non-technical audience. It's added one and a half times to its balance sheet. It has reserves growing at rates that are in the thousands of percent annual rate. It has money growth, M2 growth, at a rate of about 20% annual rate for the last uh, six months. And what is it doing to, to make that happen when you say its balance sheet is growing? It's accumulating assets. Buying assets. For, for example, what kind? Treasury bills, commercial paper, <clears throat> mortgages, um, including things like $29 billion worth of uh, unsaleable Bear Stearns assets. So it's accumulated these assets, and it's paid for those assets with money. By issuing reserves, that's right, by printing money. And who are holding those reserves? The banks, people are very fearful. They're worried, and they're concerned that there's going to be a collapse. Uh, <clears throat> the Fed encouraged that fear because it deviated from it. It never had a policy of never in its 95-year history has it had a policy of lender of last resort. Uh, so it went in the spring. It helped Bear Stearns, and the market people then 
said publicly, well, the worst of the crisis will be over because they thought the Fed was going to behave as it had always behaved, which is to bail out large firms and banks. And instead? Then it let Lehman fail. That was a complete reversal of its policy for the last 40 years. I don't object to the reversal of the policy. I do object to the fact that it came unannounced and as a total change from what people had expected. <clears throat> that created fear. If I were a portfolio manager at that point, I would do what they did. I would say, we don't know what these guys are going to do next. We don't know whether they're going to let them fail or whether they're going to bail them out. So we're just going to hold cash and wait and see. And so that's, that's where the crisis really got worse. So when the Fed is accumulating these assets and putting reserves into the banking system, the ba what are the banks doing with those reserves? Traditionally, the expectation they're was holding that a lot of them. they're holding a lot of them, but right. traditionally they would want to have as few reserves as possible because reserves are not as productive and profitable as other alternatives. Right. They do pay interest on reserves at a <clears throat> rather low rate, but uh, banks are willing to hold treasury bills at a close to a zero rate, and they hold reserves also at close to a zero rate. And they'll hold them as long as they are <clears throat> as they lack confidence in what is going to happen. Once they acquire confidence in what's going to happen, those reserves are going to be available, and they're going to fuel a big inflation. I'll get to that in a minute. Again, I just want to understand the what's happening within a bank. So within a bank, I have a reserve requirement. There's a certain minimum amount of of capital I have to have on hand to comply with my Federal Reserve regulations. And I now have more than that? Is that banks are holding excess reserves relative to oh, their capital requirements? Uh, right. Tremendous amount. Corporations are holding uh, small, ca ca large cash balances. I mean, people are, want... This is a case where you don't know what the government is going to do in the Paulson Treasury. They change their mind frequently. The Fed simply behaves in a way that it never has before. So if you're a if you have to worry about what is going to happen, the thing that you want to do is protect yourself, and that means hold cash. But you mentioned that they're also holding treasuries. Are they taking the money? I have heard, and I don't understand this, is the, the, the Fed is buying up mortgages, uh, yes. which is weird. It, it's buying up uh, – it, it used to – let me say it differently. Traditionally, the Fed, when it wanted to increase – the money supply, or lower the federal funds rate, the rate we always hear about when the Fed is mentioned as, quote, lowering interest rates, yes. it would traditionally intervene in the treasuries market only. Yes. It would, if it wanted to uh, reduce interest rates, it w and again, the federal funds rate, for those who don't remember out there, is the rate that banks charge each other, correct? Yes. For overnight loans. So if it wanted to reduce that rate, it would inject money into the system, and the way it would do that would be to buy up treasuries as, uh, and give the banks who are holding those treasuries cash. And in reverse, if it wanted to raise interest rates, it would sell treasuries, correct? Yes. And, um, and get banks to take money out of the system, put it right. into the we Fed. Right. So what's happening – Recently, is it's gone beyond treasuries. It's buying up other assets, still injecting cash into the system. 
Yes. But are the banks now turning around and buying treasuries with that cash? And how does that affect this? That's this? correct. People all over the world are buying treasuries uh, in part with the cash that the Fed is supplying. It, I mean, and when I say in part with the cash that the Fed is supplying, because it's also supplying a lot of cash, a lot of reserves to uh, foreign central banks so that foreigners can buy treasury bills and support the dollar as they've been doing. I, we, we've got to come back to that because that's totally mysterious to me uh, and it's something I know nothing about and I think is very important. But But first, what does it mean to say – that monetary policy is expansionary if what the Fed is doing is pushing money into the system, which is then coming right back out to buy up treasuries well, right away. Some of it is showing up as a growth in money, M2, money including and most inclusive definition of money that the Fed now uses. Uh, so that's growing, as I said, at 20% annual rate for the last six months. Most of the reserves, which are growing by the 1,000% annual rate are being held. So it's not expansive yet, but it's a potential for expansion when confidence begins to come back. But when you say it's being held, if it's held in the form of treasuries, is it expansive? You see my question? Yes. My confusion? <clears throat> yes, because treasuries are the most liquid asset around. Okay. So it, the, you could think, it's a little bit weird, you can think of treasuries as a, let me say it differently. Member banks are have a much more liquid balance sheet than they had uh, six months or a year ago. Correct. Is that a way to say uh, it? Yes, very liquid. And uh, the increased liquidity is a measure of their fear. I understand that. But if every bank – just take an extreme. If every bank in response to the injection – again, let me, let me back up. Traditionally, if the Fed injected cash or reserves into the system, much of it or some of it would be lent out, and that would be uh, expansionary to the economy as a whole, potentially inflationary. But now there's so much caution and so much fear and, and, and prudence that banks are holding on to that money. They're in the meanwhile investing it in treasuries because treasuries are perceived to be very safe. I think that's uncertain at this time, but <laughs> relative to other things, they're certainly very safe. So at some point in the future, when confidence returns, those treasuries will be the money in those treasuries will be available to be turned into cash and then into loans. Is that right. the that is banks are holding both large amounts of reserves, cash, and large amounts of treasury bills. So both of those will be available and will begin to be exchanged for uh, productive assets. Now let's turn to the foreign part of it, which I've not heard about, and I that's fascinating. What is the Fed doing internationally, and are they coordinating with other central banks? To a degree. The, all the central banks are uh, coordinating to a degree, and the Fed has a what has been called the swap line. That is, it lends reserves to foreign central banks in exchange for claims against the foreign central bank. It's been doing quite a bit of that in the last uh, six months because foreigners Foreigners, after all, invest in this country, and foreign banks operate in this country, and they need they have a demand for dollars. But when you say banks, are you talking about foreign central banks or foreign, no, foreign private banks? Private banks. Okay. What that would be? British banks. British banks. Japanese. Swiss banks. German banks. French banks. What about Italian banks? What about foreign central Japanese banks? banks? 
What about foreign central banks? What about what, what have they been doing, and is the Fed coordinating with them? They're expanding, not as much as we are. Almost all central banks in the world are expanding for the same reason that that they're fearful of a, of a downturn, or they're trying to reduce the effect of it. Right, they're trying to stimulate their economy. Okay, next question. I'm making some progress here. The, the, oh, the, fed, so. the federal government is uh, spending more than it takes in from taxes. So when we talk about the federal about people turning to treasuries, there there are two things going on. They they're bidding on the existing stock of treasuries and driving down thereby the return uh, as a result, which is why Fed treasury rates are very very low right now. Uh, but at the same time, the federal government is issuing. Treasuries on an ongoing basis to pay for its federal budget deficit, correct? In enormous quantity. Because we're running a, I don't even know how to measure it. Well, the Congressional Budget Office says we're running a $1.2 trillion deficit for the year before we begin to fund the new new stimulus plan. So um, let's summarize up to here. The federal government... Uh, through the Treasury Department, is flooding the world with an asset called – not flooding, the world, the capital market is very large, obviously. So even though $1.2 trillion is a large number, it's a seemingly uh, seemingly large number. It's relatively small relative to the, it's small relative to the world's capital stock. Yes, but, it is, but it's, it's very large since we have to fund so much of it from foreign sources. It is large relative to the amount of money that's going to be available from those sources. So – at the same time that we are asking to borrow money from abroad, we are also printing money uh, to help fund that those purchases, yes. right? Okay, so um, the bottom line is the money supply is, has grown dramatically. And will grow even faster as confidence is restored. And so normally, large increases in the money supply would lead to inflation, and yet ironically – and I am perplexed by this, uh, the biggest worry right now seems to be deflation. I think that's changing, but let me say a word about that. I think that the <clears throat> there is in economics uh, a difference of opinion about what you mean by inflation. People like me and Milton Friedman always defined inflation as a sustained rate of increase in, the, in a broad-based price index. Other economists, particularly Keynesian economists, <coughs> defined inflation as any increase in the price level from whatever source. Even if it's a one-time, short-term? Correct, especially a problem when it's a one-time, short-term thing. So now that you have falling oil prices and falling food prices, you get the consumer price index moving negative. But those are one-time changes in the price level. They are not rates of change, persistent rates of change that are going to go on. So So to call that deflation is to confuse yourself. I mean, it's not a matter of the words. It's a matter of distinguishing between one-time changes in the price level and changes in the rate of change. Right. So it's a difference, really. The key words for you and 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 the the traditional monetarist approach is persistent and sustained. A a short... uh, in decrease in the average prices consumers face is not going to be likely to be sustained, and if anything, it's we're going the other way, right? Right. Well, economics from the very 
earliest days teaches you to distinguish between relative price changes and general price changes. The oil price decline, which will make the price level go down, is a relative price change. It's not a general increase or decrease in the rate of price change. So we want to make that distinction. What words we use to make the distinction are much less important than making the distinction. But normally, uh, a single, an individual price could go down and overall prices could go up because of the average price levels rising at any period of time. Some right, prices are going up. Some are going up faster than others. Some might be actually... But energy and food prices have a big weight in the consumer price index. So despite <clears throat> whatever happens to other prices, they will pull the, 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 the price index down. But as temporarily. I said, that... Temporarily, yeah. that's right. So... Uh, Where's the inflation? If money supply, if the money supply is growing as dramatically as you uh, say it is, and every measure says that it is, why is that not being translated into not just higher prices but sustained higher prices that continue to grow? Because people, <clears throat> the the first principle of economics that one should learn is that the government controls the rate of growth of the money stock. And the public decides how much they want to hold. Right now, they want to hold quite a bit. So we don't see inflation. But that will change as their confidence is restored. And so when their confidence is restored, we will begin to see pressure on the Federal Reserve to mop up the enormous increase in reserves that they have provided. The chances that they will be willing to do that and that they won't be under pressure to not do it, I believe, is enormous. So normally, if they were, as that inflation starts to be realized, as people start to try to spend all these cash reserves, as banks try to lend them out, you're saying that that would cause inflation, will, will cause inflation, and the response of the Fed in that world would be to try to get those reserves back out of the system Unfortunately, by that raising interest the, rates, correct? That, yeah, but they'll be under... Uh, pressure from the Congress, from Wall Street, from many people in the business community who say you're, the, the recovery is just starting, you're having danger with the, with the recovery, prices aren't rising. I mean, in the 1970s, <clears throat> the Fed understood very well that it had an inflationary policy. They would tell each other <clears throat> over and over again, we're not going to inflate this time, we're going to do the right thing, we're going to stop the inflation. And then the unemployment rate would get to 7%, about where it is now. And they would say, oh, we have to do something about the unemployment rate. Well, they're going to do something about the unemployment rate. That will be their first priority. That's how we got the great inflation. And we didn't end it until Paul Volcker decided to follow what he called practical monetarism. That is, he didn't just pay attention to the unemployment rate. He paid most attention to the inflation the inflation rate, and he brought it down. But we don't have Paul Volcker now. And I encourage our listeners to go back to that earlier podcast that, that we did before with, uh, with Alan Meltzer, where he talks about the political economy of, of the Fed. It's a fascinating discussion of the political pressure that the Fed faces, uh, despite the claim of its independence. Um, my you know, there's a story in the Wall Street Journal today saying that there's a dispute within the Fed and I believe it's a correct story about whether and how much they should buy long-term securities. <clears throat> and, of course, from the very beginning of its history, this, this 
dispute between those who were most concerned about inflation and those who were responsible or responsive to political pressures has always been there, and it's there now with with enormous pressure. What's the issue with respect to long-term securities? Who's pushing for it and who's against it? Central banks, properly run, consider their their principal responsibility to prevent inflation. That doesn't mean they ignore unemployment, but it means that they always have their eye out to make sure that they're not creating another inflation. One of the ways they do that is to keep their balance sheet so that they can buy and sell easily the securities that they own. Long-term securities are not one of them. So uh, not easily to, easy to sell because they fluctuate in price so much. Therefore, the Fed, by buying long-term securities, is putting itself into a position where it has things that it will be unlikely to sell. <clears throat> we went through a period in the 1940s uh, during the war and the post-war where we had pegged interest rates on long-term securities. The Fed bought long-term securities and made sure that they're the interest rate never went above 2.5%. That produced a big inflation. <clears throat> That's what's going to happen again. So um, if you are correct, and I think you are, um, the coming inflation uh, in the next few years, whenever the economy starts to recover, is going to make the 1970s look like a picnic. <laughs> a picnic on a rainy day. Yeah, so uh, who would disagree with you? Who would, is there anybody out there who's more optimistic? Well, I guess there are people on Wall Street. I think most of the people at the Fed, particularly at the board, uh, have their sights fixed on the near term. That's always been a problem. Uh, and you know, to talk to them about the longer term, gee, that just is something never-never land. I remember a meeting at the board in 1967. They have a group called the Consultants. Milton Friedman was there with me. That was a rare thing. They usually couldn't take the two of us at one time. <laughs> but but he was there, and he turned to McChesney Martin, the chairman at the time, and said to him, you know, you've done a good job of handling the most recent mini-recession. <clears throat> And you did it by slowing money growth, and the price level at that time came down very quickly, and uh, you've gotten the inflation out of the system. But now you're making a big mistake because you're putting it back in. You've got money growth too high, and you're going to have another inflation. Well, McChesney Martin never, never thought much about economics. He didn't like economics. He didn't think much of economists. It was painful to him to have to sit there and listen to to them. But he was a very nice man, so he did those things. He just didn't believe it. So he nodded his head. After the meeting, Milton came up and said, I think he heard me. No, I said, I think he understood you. (laughs) Not the same thing, unfortunately. Uh, and then we had, of course, an inflationary period uh, right, in the 70s. Right, which went on for 14 years. Um, so when should this, uh, if you are right again, which again I think you are, why are long-term interest rates so low? Because Shouldn't they be factoring in the risk of inflation? Because of fear all over the world. And people are buying, <clears throat> but they've moved up quite a bit in the last month. 
and you think uh, how, how much? Wh- wh- let me say it. Ask it differently. What measures should a uh, should we be looking at to anticipate to see where that in- inflation is being anticipated? We should look at the growth in the money supply and the growing spread between real and nominal interest rates. Where will that show up first? Do you ha- is there a place? Is, is there a particular the spread between real and nominal interest rates? It's available every day, and it's moved quite a bit. That is moved from where the market was incorrectly, in my opinion, anticipating deflation, to where it no longer is. When you say interest rates, there, there's there are many of them. Ten-year bonds. Okay. Um, are there any five-year bonds? I mean, any longer term. Anything rate. than a few months. Are there any arrows left in the monetary quiver? Um, a lot of people argue that the Fed's main instrument for affecting economic policy is the federal funds rate. It's close to zero. Uh, therefore, the Fed is is pushing on a string. There's nothing it can do. Is that true? What is? No, it's nonsense. Okay. You know, they talk about quantitative easing. Yeah, explain what that is. And, and Quantitative easing? Yes. It means they're going to buy longer-term securities they're not going to pay attention to the federal funds rate because it's so low, and they can't make it any lower. <clears throat> so they're going to put out reserves against other assets than treasury bills. Well, all easing, in my opinion, is quantitative easing. It's all the same thing, right? Right. It's just they're going to buy it's a different, different asset. Yeah. But that doesn't bother me or change my opinion at all. So they. So the, the bottom line is this worry that the, the monetary policy has no um, weapons left is false. But totally. but uh, it is also true that as long as you point out there's an atmosphere of fear that pushing money into the system and accumulating those assets isn't going to have any real effect in the short run, correct? That's correct. But, you know, <coughs> sooner or later, probably later rather than sooner, <coughs> people will either buy begin to buy other assets to a greater degree or they'll begin to buy con- consumer goods. That is people will have more real cash balances than they want. And as they accumulate more and more real cash balances, they'll get to the point where they want to spend them, either to buy assets or to buy consumer goods. And <clears throat> helping along that process along will be a, eventually some improvement in confidence. But in the traditional textbook story of monetary policy, the way we often teach it to our students if we're teaching macro, which I don't, but the sort of standard way we think about it, the way I was taught, is this Fed as helicopter drop, where the Fed sprinkles money around the system. I wake up one morning, I have more money in my wallet than I want to hold in the form of cash. (coughs) I try to convert it into assets or into, into goods, as you say, and that starts to have a effect on the nominal and potentially the real economy. Correct. But the Fed isn't sprinkling that money on consumers. It's sprinkling it on a handful of financial institutions, and they have a different um, – they're not – their demand for money is, is weird. It's not like mine. Well, that's because <clears throat> they're fearful. But when they become less fearful, they'll hold less cash. And they'll lend it out to small businesses and then – Right, and to consumers – and yep. so on. I mean, you know, they've, they've been burned very badly. And one of the reasons they've been burned, which I hope we're going to get to, is because we don't allow large banks to fail. Well, we're going to get to that. Don't worry. Um, that, that is uh, 
there is no doubt a great deal of uh, uncertainty about the policy environment. Um, yes, and yesterday's speech, you saw the reaction in the market to yesterday's speech. They want some better certainty about what the yeah. government is going to do, and they didn't get it. You're referring to the sp- first speech that Geithner's made. Again, we're, we're taping this on February 11th. Uh, yesterday, Geithner made his unveiled his plan. It didn't have many details, and the market went down 5%. Um, right. Pretty clearly in, re- in response to that. You can't always be sure. Um, you want to say anything about the Japan experience with respect to monetary policy? Yes. I was an advisor, an honorary advisor to the Bank of Japan for 16 years, including the, nine, the 1990s, all of the 1990s. They had a governor of the bank, a very nice man named Governor Hayami. Uh, they, in their in their Parliament, the Diet, passed legislation spending money for all kinds of public works projects. They trillions of dollars. Pardon me? Trillions. trillions of dollars. Infrastructure, roads, bridges, buildings. Railroads, railroads. They have <coughs> fast railroads, uh, and the fast railroads require track that on which the fast trains can run. It's called Shinkansen. But they built them to every village and town. They'll never pay productively for for that because there aren't enough people going to those places. But they built them. They paved over just about every square foot of Japan that wasn't used for agriculture. The result was nothing, very little. I tried to convince, since I often talked to Governor Hayami, I tried to convince him that he needed to expand money growth. He believed that as long as banks weren't lending, you, it did no good to expand money growth, so he wouldn't do it. When his successor came in, they adopted the policy that I had urged on him, and that was buy long-term bonds. And he did, and that you didn't need the banking system to lend. It was an efficient way of getting money into circulation, but it isn't the only way to get money into circulation. He could buy longer-term bonds. He could buy foreign exchange. There were lots of things that they could buy, and that would put more money into circulation, and eventually people would have more than they wanted to hold, and that is what happened. So Japan's fiscal stimulus failed miserably. Failed miserably. Don't some people say that the monetary policy failed as well? Are you suggesting it just wasn't tried? Right. It wasn't tried. (coughs) Governor Hayami did not believe that monetary policy would work, and at one meeting, uh, it was pretty clear that because they were central bankers and they thought there were too many reserves in the system, they were in something like the position we're in now, they were thinking about raising interest rates. Now, a quarter point increase in the interest rates wasn't going to do any harm by itself, but it was a signal that they were not going to continue a policy of providing additional money growth. result was they had the, the recession deepened. But, I, but It was a mistake. And incidentally, Don Cohn, the vice chairman, currently the vice chairman of the Fed, was at the meeting with me, and he also, in a mild way, told them they shouldn't do that. That is, they, they were making a mistake. They didn't want to listen to him any more than they wanted to listen to me. But I can, you can understand uh, Governor Hayami's uh, un, un, unease, just as in today's world, expansion of reserves appears not to be very effective because of the lack of response on the part of banks. So if if you had 
Chairman Bernanke's ear, and that you may, um, and I don't know if you can talk about it, but uh, sh- what should they be doing right now? What they should be doing is trying to clear up the mess in the financial system. Well, let's turn to that. What what going back to the Bear Stearns? Um, I don't know, like it's sort of a bailout, sort of a merger, sort of a marriage, whatever you want to call it. The Fed's um, and Treasury's um, matchmaking of Bear Stearns and, and J.P. Morgan by guaranteeing twenty nine at the time, I think thirty two billion of ended up being thirty two billion dollars of toxic assets, which we're now finding out are actually not worth very much. Um, at the time, we were told, oh, they probably we, maybe we'd break even on it. That looks like it's not going to be the case. Um, so for the, since then, which was, I think, March of 2008, last nine, ten months, uh, the, the Fed has and the Treasury have been trying to get the banking system back into health, and they failed miserably. Uh, well, I shouldn't say miserably. They've, they've not been successful. There's been some success, but— They prevented it from getting worse. Yes, um, and some of the interest rate spreads, uh, which look to be catastrophically high— You still there? Some of the interest rate spreads that look to be catastrophically high have come down. So there have been some success, but but basically it's still a dysfunctional system. Yes. What have they done wrong, and what should they do now? What they've done wrong is continue what they've been doing for 40 years. That is, they have a policy, too big to fail. Too big to fail is a policy which invites people to take excessive risks. That's how one of the main reasons we got into this mess. No bank believes that it was go- believed that it was going to fail. They believed they talked openly about what they called the Greenspan put. That is, if things got bad, Greenspan would take the bad assets off their hands. Well, <clears throat> that turned out to be a terrible policy. I mean, they don't allow. Uh, they have three things that they can do as lender of last resort <clears throat> to help in crises like this. One is they can save the bank. The other is they can merge the bank. The third thing is they can let the bank fail. They never, never, never allow the third one to operate for a large bank. So it's not surprising that these banks took extraordinary risks. Now, what I believe they need to do is very simple, very direct, and very Oh, but they need to announce that their policy is going to be that any bank that needs more capital, as many of them do, should raise half the capital they need in the marketplace. If they can't raise, and then they'll get, there will give them, the government will give them a concessional loan. I would prefer not to give them the concessional loan, but I don't believe that that's within the realm of possibility. So... Let's give them part of what they need at a concessional rate, provided they can raise the other part in the market. If they can't raise it in the market, then the market has valued them as insolvent. Insolvent. So what should we do? We have a law on the books called FIDISHA, the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation Improvement Act that the Congress passed in 1991. FIDISHA says while the bank still has some remaining capital, close it down, get rid of the stockholders, get rid of the management, and sell what remains. That's what they should do. What if um, every bank is in that situation? But they're not. 
they're not. We know that Wells Fargo is not in that position. We know that one of the banks here in Pittsburgh, which is now, I think, the sixth largest bank in the country, Pittsburgh National, not in that problem, doesn't have that problem. We know that J.P. Morgan Chase doesn't have that problem. There are others which are more questionable. But we're not going to eliminate the banks. What we're going to do is eliminate the management and the stockholders. We're going to let the bank continue to run and sell it off in pieces if necessary. Is that a uh, logistical nightmare? No. <clears throat> I think that's a solution. Because a lot of people argued back in March that the reason we had to uh, save Bear Stearns uh, institutionally was that they were if we had let them go bankrupt, the bankruptcy law is so convoluted that it would take so long to untangle that the entire banking system would freeze up. We're not going to close the bank and fire all the people. We're going to continue to run the bank, deal with their counterparties, do everything that they do now. We're just going to have a new management. Will that work? Well, that's what they did for Continental Illinois Bank back in the 70s and 80s. Back in the 80s. They closed it up, they got rid of the management, they appointed new managers, they got rid of the stockholders, and they eventually sold it to Bank of America. But who's going to appoint all those new managers? Where are they going to come from? Who are they? Oh, there are plenty of people who are capable of running the banks. I mean, they don't have to be bankers. In the case of Continental Illinois, it wasn't a banker. It was a, the former CEO of, uh, of, of an oil company. But who's going to make, that's going to be a political decision. But, but all these decisions are political. We can't avoid that. Yeah, I agree. I grant you that. Um, what we need to do, see, see what Geithner is running into the same problem that Paulson had. He comes up with a program that is supposed to value the bad assets. You can't value those bad assets at the present time. They sell every day, so they have a value. But the value is based upon the very uncertain value of the houses that lie in back of those mortgages and the uncertainty about the ability of anybody to put together the mortgages that have been broken apart and sold in pieces. So there's great uncertainty. They sell, the last time I looked, they sold for around $45 per hundred. Meaning that, meaning that if there was a $100 of, of face expected... Value, you got expected 40, cash flow from the mortgages in the bundle, you're only going to get 45. Right, less than half. All right. Now, more than zero, though. More than zero. But if they try to buy those mortgages at $45, they're going to bankrupt most of the banks that have to sell them. So that is why they get stuck trying to do this. Now, Guyton's idea is he's going to let the private market do it, but they're going to face the same problem. What I say is, look... We value those banks every day. The stock is sold on the market. People already have valued all those assets. So let's just take the valuation that there is there for the whole bank. And if it's negative, if they can't raise any capital, then they're insolvent. Let's close them up. That way we'll clean up this mess. Let's go back to the 45 cents on the dollar point because I didn't understand it. Uh, a bank is holding a security <clears throat> on its balance sheet. Right. It is a bundle of hundreds or thousands of individual mortgages. Right, or pieces if, of them. Or pieces. If all those mortgages, if none of them defaulted, there's a certain cash flow expected from, right. that, uh, uh, from that asset. But because the default rate is uncertain, 
and, and unpredictable and, and high, but also, un- more importantly, I think, unpredictable. Well, we have a market estimate. The market estimate is that in 2009, those mortgages will go down, I'm sorry, house prices will go down 11%. So associated with another 11%, there's going to be some expectation of a larger number of defaults than we currently have. Correct. So the asset isn't worth the thousand, the cash flow from the asset isn't what it would be if there was no default. Right. And, and the value is highly uncertain. But so you want to discount it, and so that's the forty-five cents on the that's dollar. Where the forty-five cents comes, and because we have mark-to-market accounting, the bank is listing that asset on its books at forty-five cents. Well, some do and some don't. <clears throat> the ones that do uh, are priced have taken their hit, but a lot of them say, "Well, some of these mortgages we're going to hold to maturity, therefore we don't have to mark them to market." On the hope that they'll all none of them will default, That's right? <laughs> Which is, of course, not true. Um, but I, I, I want to go back but to. See, but let's remember that while the banks may do that or play all kinds of games with their accounting, the market every day values the bank. There's a price for the stock in that bank, and that price values all the assets in the bank. The now pr- it takes a big discount. Because of the uncertainty, I understand. But that's the price. But if the price isn't zero, then the bank isn't insolvent by that definition. Well, <clears throat> that's right. But if it can't raise capital and it can't restore the capital that it's supposed to hold, with respect to its reserve requirements, right? With respect to, yeah, and with its legal requirement, then it's insolvent under the fiduciary law. Uh-huh. And the the idea of fiduciary law was to prevent to let the regulators take over a bank that was in trouble before the capital was all eroded so that the taxpayers wouldn't take such a big hit. What do you think of these proposals to get rid of mark-to-market accounting as a way of inducing solvency in the banking system? Well, I have a mixed mind on things like that. I, I agree that many of these assets, the market values, aren't very good. But you open the door... You know, I don't like changing rules when it's convenient for you because then you don't have rules. I mean, a clear example of that is these pressures to have to let let judges change the value of mortgages. We have a bankruptcy law, and it doesn't permit that. If we change the bankruptcy law, the bankruptcy law is a very valuable thing to have because it tells people what you can expect if you get into a certain position. If we change the law when it's to our convenience, we don't have that certainty anymore. So we're giving up something very valuable in order to get a temporary respite and and of and help maybe to our problems. Not a good idea. Uh, do you think that the reason that your solution, which is similar to the one that John Cochran uh, proposed a few weeks ago on in a in a related podcast the idea that let them fail they're not going to disappear they're not we're not going to wipe out the the uh, the depositors in the bank let them fail let them be reorganized let prudent banks buy up imprudent ones and let the system work out its own problems that way correct with the help of 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 this regulation. Um, is that going to get it? That's not getting a lot of traction. What do you think? Is it is it purely well, the political? I can only tell you what I learned. I, I made that proposal to the Paulson Treasury, to the people in the Paulson Treasury. 
the answer they gave me was very unsatisfactory as far as I was concerned. They said we asked the banks if they want if if they would do that, and they said no. Strangely but, enough, how surprising! You mean yeah, right. The managers didn't rather, want to be fired. Would, would no. you rather have uh, low cost subsidized capital, or would you rather go out to the market and pay the market price, even if you're solvent? Hmm. Well, they said, of course, we can't do that. It's too hard. Well, that's a very disturbing political economy um, right, it, reality. Right, it is indeed. And so they gave in to that. But there is capital out there. Look, the bank in California, uh, IndyMac, it just got sold to some Wall Street investors. People are buying and selling these assets every day. There is capital available. It may not be very happy price that the owners of these banks are going to get. But that's where they are. Uh, I want to go back to a point you made a minute ago, which I'm um, fascinated by. I want to talk about this uh, Greenspan um, put. put. Yeah, uh, there was a piece um, in the Sunday New York Times a month or two ago by Joe Nocera, very provocative piece. I don't know if you saw it, no. but the gist of it was is that the investment bankers, uh, the people at Bear Stearns and at Lehman and other places, uh, were misperceiving the risks they were facing. For example, they used value at risk, which is a statistical technique for evaluating how bad things can get and how much what's your risk of, of catastrophe. And his claim uh, is that the value at risk tool is very misleading, uh, mainly because although it tells you the odds of a bad event, it doesn't weight the um, – the amount of the bad event that occurs so that a bad event, one out of 10,000 is one thing, but a bad event that destroys your company, one out of 10,000 is, is more than just a bad event. It's catastrophic. Similarly, I've heard people say, you know, these banks, these investment banks were so leveraged. They had borrowed so much money to invest in these subprime assets and uh, mortgage backed securities and collateralized debt obligations they were leveraged 35 to 1. And in that situation, a 4% downturn wipes you out. So in other words, if you're not leveraged and the market prices go down 4%, you lose 4%. If you're highly leveraged and you lose 4%, you go out of business. I find it hard to believe, although I'd love to believe it for my priors and biases, but I find it hard to believe that the managers of these firms put their, their companies on the line knowingly because they thought, well, you know, if that really bad event happens, which is only a 4% downturn, uh, we'll be bailed out. Do you think that's what they were really thinking? I'm afraid so. How would I'm you I'm afraid so. You know, I'll tell you, <clears throat> in my book I discuss, to some extent, this problem. One of the parts of the problem is that many of these bankers had very sophisticated models of risk. Exactly. But those models of risk use things like the normal distribution. Correct. But what they don't allow for successfully and don't allow for perhaps at all is that there are <clears throat> there are large, persistent, one-time changes that occur. For example, the Russian default, right, this the is failure of long-term capital, this is the decline in the housing process. Yeah, this is and that explains why in these distributions, instead of normal distributions, you have fat tails. Right. And that's because you have permanent, big changes. 
and they didn't allow for that. That's one part of the problem. That's just, but that's just blind. That's Taleb's point, the black swan argument, and that is also in that Nocera piece, by the way. This whole idea of the fat tails. But you'd think yeah. if you get a fat tail event every few years, like Russia, housing prices, all of a sudden it's not so. You'd think you'd be looking for that. Well, you get these fat tail events more frequently in recent years because no one is allowed to fail. So you get people taking big risks. And that's um, unfortunately seems to me to be the only sensible explanation of what people did. The SEC told banks, told investment banks, look, you can let your leverage go up to about 30%. So they did. They didn't worry about it. It was profitable to do that. They made a lot of money, you know, and the managers made oodles of boodle. <laughs> yeah. so they were very happy, and they had risk models that didn't tell them about these events any more than long-term capital. I once had a conversation with Myron Scholes. He was a principal at long-term capital. I, I said to him, Myron, you and your friend, colleague at long-term capital worked out fat tails. What happens in fat tails? Why didn't you tell Meriwether about that, the head of long-term capital? He said, we did. He didn't want to hear it. So the question then is, and I think this is a, a even though this sounds like a, a obscure question of, of economic history, I think it's in many ways the central question about what we want to do next if we were it we goes along others. goes along with one other thing. Yeah. The Fed did not allow them to fail. Didn't allow banks to fail. So as long as they thought if we take these risks, we will be bailed out, they continued to take those risks. We're never going to get out of this problem unless we allow banks to fail. Now the alternative explanation, and this is where I this is where the history comes in. The, the alternative explanation, which is being pushed by a whole different set of economists, is that, well, it doesn't have anything to do with that. It's just there's this exuberance, this irrational exuberance. Uh, you got to dance when the music's playing, and if, if everybody's investing in, in um, these collateralized debt obligations, you've got to play too because their rates of return are going to look so good. And I don't find that a plausible argument in the, simply because – let me say in answer to that that we have counter evidence. J.P. Morgan Chase didn't do that. Pittsburgh National Bank didn't do it. Wells Fargo didn't do it. Bank of America didn't do it until it got hungry and bought up after the crisis started, bought countrywide. up countrywide, yeah. and then Merrill. So well, Merrill, they uh, were urged by the government with the promise that they'd be bailed out of any bad assets. Right. That was a disaster. Right, and that turned out to be a major mistake. But those banks, up to the beginning of the crisis, had not engaged in that behavior. They were prudent. Now, I know the management of one of those banks. It's just far removed from possibility that that bank would engage in highly risky assets. It's a conservative, well-run bank. But do you think that the ones that did not were counting on being bailed out? Absolutely. And how would you prove that? I can't prove it. I just look at their behavior and say, how else can I explain why these people took such extraordinary risks? I mean, it is a fascinating... They had a history which told them, you know, banks are not allowed to fail. I have no doubt that that induces risk-taking above and beyond what would be prudent normally. 
The question is, is that it's hard to understand how it produced so much risk-taking. And, I, and I'll give you, let me give that, you... That, no, that goes along with, <clears throat> with the fat tails. Because? Because they ignore the fat tails. But that's just... Is the, so then is the, que- the question is, is it... Is it st- I mean, I think the crucial intellectual question here is, was it stupidity and myopia or was it uh, overconfidence about, about being bailed out? I mean, they weren't... Perhaps a mixture of the two. Yeah, no, I think so. There's no doubt about that. Uh, and I guess the relevant question would be, uh, you know, how, how bailed out are they? This is a question we got into when I talked with uh, Darren Esamoglu recently. Uh, some of them have made a great deal of money over the last few years. Others of them, are their reputation's in tatters, and, and they, got, they lost an enormous amount. So I'm not sure it was such a great strategy to count on the insurance policy. Oh, ex post? Yes. Oh, absolutely not. Which? To, it was not a good strategy to count on it. Right. But in the past, you know, they got bailed out. So that they... Look at long-term capital management. Should have been allowed to fail. It wasn't. Why wasn't it? Well, the Fed believed it had to rescue it. But the Fed didn't literally rescue it, didn't they? just put together a consortium of, of private money. It Is that correct? On, it leaned on its people in the New York market to bail it out. So you're suggesting that it wasn't a purely voluntary decision on the part of those players? I don't think so. Okay. Uh, l- let's turn now. We got a little time left. I want to. I want to ask you about. Not a lot. Uh, no, I know. I want to ask you about how we got into this mess, and oh. only one part of it, though, because we don't. We don't have a, a few weeks. All right. Um, I would. I would list. I, I've <clears throat> written a part, an epilogue for my history on this, and I have six reasons, but I'll stick to two. Go ahead. The two most important. One is, the government, there is nothing more sacred among the sacred cows in Congress than housing. So, they couldn't do enough to satisfy their desire to help people buy houses. They passed legislation, and they did what they never should have done. That is, they encouraged Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to buy up these securities, which many of which have turned out to be bad investments. And we're on the hook Why for... did they do that? <laughs> Why did they do that? After all, what did Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac do that was important for the lenders? They subsidized interest rates. They could have subsidized those interest rates on the budget. As a matter of fact, you and I would certainly say they should have. If they're going to subsidize interest rates, they should put it on the budget. It should be transparent. It's, right. It's what but, a democracy does. Right. That's what a democracy is supposed to do, to make it transparent, to put it on the budget. But, of course, it was not in the interest of many of the congressmen to put it on the budget because, after all, it could be defeated in any given year. It could be cut or reduced. This way, they had an agency to do that. And the number of dollars that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were putting out in the mortgage market went from something like $400 billion to $2.5 trillion yeah. between 1980 and uh, in over 25 years. But what role... What, my, my so that's, that's one. I mean, they encourage this business. No doubt. But the question I, w- I want to hear from you is, what role did monetary policy play in this problem? Too big to fail. That's the second big item. It couldn't fail. So you don't blame, as John Taylor does, you don't blame Greenspan from the 2001 to 2005 period? Oh, I do. 
I do. But I add... I agree, the incentive part. I agree. He, he gave them the wherewithal to invest to buy these bad assets, but he didn't make them buy them. No, I understand. That was a bad decision. I understand. But the amount of capital that was... The, the claim is, we went from... In the, in the aftermath of the 9-11 attacks and the tech bubble, there was this worry we're going to be in a recession. So Greenspan responds by lowering the federal funds rate to 1%, and he holds it there for a very long time historically low level, uh, did that induce a great deal of liquidity in the system? And if so, where would I see it? He kept interest rates very low. He didn't actually add, I mean, money growth wasn't all that high. So it wasn't a highly inflationary policy. We got a little inflation of that, and the Fed began to react to that inflation before the crisis started. But what he did do was he encouraged the subsidy. You could buy a mortgage that was yielding 5 or 6%, and you could finance it short-term by, by, by short-term investment, short-term borrowing at 1% or 2%. Right, the adjustable rate mortgages, the gap between the 30-year and the, and the adjustable rate mortgage uh, grew dramatically in that period. Yes. Because I assume Greenspan was pushing down short-term rates right. uh, effectively. He believed... I had a conversation with him because I happened to be a visitor at the, at a visiting scholar at the Fed at just about the time he was trying to make his decision about what he was going to do in 2003. And he was convinced, and I could not unconvince him. He asked me to talk about the problem to him. I did. I couldn't convince him that there wasn't going to be a deflation. He believed there was a risk of deflation, and he worried about it. And so he continued that policy. It was a mistake, you know, but... If you're in a job like that, you it's make mistakes. Job. It's a tough job, yeah. <laughs> um, that, that was, you know, he ran a pretty good policy, rather a very good policy for about a 17 years or well, 15 years, and then he made a mistake. But it, I'm, one thing I'm curious about, in that time period, it wasn't just short-term rates that were falling, but long-term rates were falling as well in the housing market. Yes. Why do you think that was? Because long-term rates are an average of expected future short rates. And they expected him to continue that policy. So do you think the Fed does affect longer-term rates, not just short-term rates, through its federal funds policy? Of course. Okay. Last question. Are you surprised at the return of John Maynard Keynes into the intellectual uh, conversation? He he was gone in the the classroom, other than undergraduate textbooks. I describe that to my students as reaching for straws. They don't have any rational basis that doing what they're doing. And so they dream up, and that really is a dream up, they dream up John Maynard Keynes. I wrote a book about Keynes called Keynes Monetary Theory, A Different Approach. And uh, Keynes went to a meeting, used to come to the United States quite a bit during World War II because he was negotiating the Bretton Woods Agreement and he was negotiating a British loan later. <clears throat> and at one of these meetings, an economist, a well-known economist named Abba Lerner, who was a very strict, outspoken Keynesian, gave a talk in which he proposed substantial deficit spending at the end of the war financed by issuing bonds. Keynes went to the seminar. He said no central bank or government should do that. And yet, 
that is his intellectual legacy. Yes, but it isn't true. I mean, that is, it's just false. First, it's false that deficit spending eventually got us out of the Depression. In 1938, Henry Morgenthau, who was the Secretary of the Treasury at the time, said our policy has failed. Roosevelt ran on a program of balancing the budget. He criticized Hoover for not balancing the budget. Right. In fact, he pushed Hoover into balancing the budget by raising tax rates. But as we've talked about on this show in the past, the Keynesian counter to that is, well, yeah, Roosevelt never tried deficit spending, but World War II forced us to do it, and that's what got us out of the Depression. Well, that's not true. In 1938, the economy was back in recession. And Roosevelt came home, came back to Washington from from Warm Springs, and his policy advisors told him, Mr. President, we have to do something in time for the 1938 congressional elections. What should we do? What we should do is we should run deficits and have a big spending program. And that's what he did. And? It didn't work. Why did it work during the war? Well, because then it was a consistent policy, you know, of we're going to expand and we're going to do this persistently. There's not going to be any change in this policy. We know it's going to continue. You could never believe that about Roosevelt in the prior years because he kept changing his policy. He came in with six different groups of advisors, each one of which had a different policy, and each policy he tried. First, he tried to cartelize to all the industry. Then he tried to have a massive antitrust policy, and so on. First, he tried to balance the budget. Then he tried to unbalance the budget. So you didn't know what he was going to do. When the war started, he gave some certainty. Well, that's an interesting theory. I, you know, We've had Bob Higgs on here, who I, whose work I'm very interested in whose claim is that it, it didn't even work during the war, that it was good for the military side of the economy, but the private sector didn't respond successfully. It wasn't stimulative. It, of course, it reduced unemployment because we hired Pulled them into the we, Yeah, exactly. That, that's easy to do, but that's not prosperity. Right. Well, you, you also held down had price controls. Yep. So you gave people a lot of money because you were printing money at a rapid rate, and so you had a big monetary stimulus. And I think Bob Barrow is now trying to sort out yep. uh, which parts of that were most important. Yeah, we'll see if we can chat with him about that down the road. Well, thank you so much for a, a fascinating conversation with, with a lot of uh, really delightful historical uh, incidents to, to add to it. Thank you. My guest today has been Alan Meltzer of Carnegie Mellon University. Alan, thanks for being part of Econ Talk. Thank you. This is Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more Econ Talk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for Econ Talk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.